everyone, welcome back to episode 2 of Politics on Trial. This episode will regard the border and immigration crisis. To get started, one of our students, Kirtana, will give her opinion on the matter. I think it's been made very clear that the infrastructure at our southern border has reached a breaking point. And even that is an understatement. Every week we see reports delving into the inhumane conditions of detained immigrants. Every week we are encountered with the rising numbers of dead children at our border. And despite all of this, it doesn't even seem to be a priority partisan issue at the moment. Both Republicans and Democrats tend to be quite mouthy when it comes to the border crisis. However, at the end of the day, it's Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric or the Democrats' unclear message on immigration reform. Since Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, it's been fairly clear on where Republicans stand when it comes to immigration. I mean, within the last year alone, he has tried to ban asylum twice. He's announced nationwide raids and has cut aid to Central American governments. On the flip side, the Democratic parties can't seem to agree on immigration policy. Although House Democrats, urged by progressives, have allocated funds for humanitarian relief and have passed a bill, it's clear that not all of them were in favor of doing so. And especially now, with the election coming up, I think it's more important than ever that the Democratic Party commits to their policy pragmatically and that they articulate enforcement priorities. I think it's so, so important that Democrats stress reform and that they offer somewhat immediate solutions, such as working with the DHS to change asylum processing, but that they also take a step back and initiate a sort of foster system that will encourage a stable and economically productive Central America. So by bettering their pre-existing living conditions, we will also be able to avoid overpopulation. So let's talk about some of the some of the claims that some people are making regarding immigration. So the first claim is that, you know, immigrants who come into our country, whether legally or illegally, they say that they take jobs and they hurt the economy. However, or rather, I can see where that claim is based because the U.S. Hispanic population in 2010 was 50.7 million and in 2019 it was 60.6 million so they the the hispanic group the hispanic population in the u.s made up 16 percent of the population in 2010 and just five percent in 1970 so it's growing pretty fast and i can see where that where the claim that they take jobs and hurt the economy is based but when we look at a graph from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Services, we can, and it says the average annual U.S. household expenditures by race and ethnicity. So when you look at it, you can see Hispanic and Latinos are contributing to the economy. It's not like they're not they're not paying anything or they're not putting that money back into the economy. They are helping the economy to grow. They are helping it to, you know, flourish. They are a part of the economy. So it's it almost seems like it would be unfair to say that they are taking jobs, no? Of course. 
And not only is the American or the Hispanic population increasing, so is the number of Hispanics with college experience since 2010. About 41% of U.S. Hispanic adults from 25 and older have had at least some sort of college experience in 2018. And that's up from the 36% in 2010. The share who have had a bachelor's degree or education also increased from 13 to 17%. Another claim that's made by often right-wing groups is that in the U.S. we should speak English and that, you know, all races should kind of assimilate to this, you know, almost whitewashed culture that happens in the United States. And even though that opinion may seem wrong, it's not that immigrants are failing to try. In fact, the the population of Latinos in the U.S. who speak English proficiently is growing heavily. Um, in 2018, 71% of Latinos ages 5 and older spoke English proficiently. And that was up from 59% only in 2000. So U.S.-born Latinos are driving this growth, and as their share on this measure has grown from 81 to 90 percent during this time, we can see that they're, they're trying to assimilate into the culture of the United States. They're trying, to, they're trying to make themselves seem less threatening to people who are threatened by them. But it also, this is also indicative of a problem in our society. Because these people feel forced to speak English because of increases in racism and xenophobia in the United States. And to be honest, they're scared. You see videos of people accosting these people saying that they should only speak English in America because in America we speak English. And whether or not you agree with that, it, it is not okay for someone to go up to someone and say, what you're saying or what you're speaking in, although it's private, is not okay. About 80% of Latinos living in the country are U.S. citizens. That's up from the 74% in 2010. This includes people born in the United States and its territories, one of which is Puerto Rico, people born abroad to American parents, and immigrants who have been naturalized citizens. Now, among the origin groups, virtually all Puerto Ricans are considered to be U.S. citizens. So Spaniards make up about 91%, Mexicans 80%, and those are considered some of the highest citizenship rates, whereas Hondurians and Venezuelans make up 53% and 51% respectively, which are considered some of the lowest rates. So during this pandemic, it's all the more important that we bring to light some of the issues that we have in our immigration system. So the National Immigrant Justice Center says, and I quote, ICE routinely fails to provide adequate oversight and exercise meaningful consequences for facility failures to meet ICE's minimal detention standards. Meanwhile, they have failed to invest in far more humane, effective, and cost-efficient community-based alternatives to detention that could reduce the problem of immigration um, and reduce the spending that we that the government uses on the problem of immigration by 80%. So the crisis is mainly unfolding in a few spots around the country, and one of them is the ICA Farmville location. Um, 
it has been reported that there is indiscriminate use of pepper spray, um, the persistent use of force, extreme force, such as beatings by officers and hunger strikes. Sometimes they force them to go on hunger strikes. There are worms found in their food. And it's not because the ICE officials aren't checking their food. It's because the ICE officials and the government won't spend enough to buy food from a proper manufacturer. And then finally, the unjustified use of restraints. So a discrepancy report from ICE in 2015 details an incident in March 2015 where the staff used a restraint chair and restraint bed on a person for more than four days without sufficient justification. The restraint started on uh, March 12th when the staff handcuffed a person after they fell on a soapy floor. The staff then placed him in a chair before moving him from the restraint chair to the restraint bed in the medical unit where he was kept until March 16th. It's not even that he did anything. Everything, he was doing everything fine. He slipped on soap and they put him in restraints. Something about that does not seem humane. The COVID-19, otherwise known as the novel coronavirus, and the federal government's response has disrupted virtually every aspect of the U.S. immigration system. Visa processing overseas by the Department of State, as well as the processing of some immigration benefits within the country by the United States. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, have come to a near standstill. Entry into the United States along the Mexican and Canadian borders, including asylum seekers, have been severely restricted. Immigration enforcement actions in the interior of the country have been curtailed, although they have not stopped entirely. Tens of thousands of people remain in immigration detention, despite the high risk of COVID-19 transmission in crowded jails, prisons, and detention centers that the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, otherwise known as ICE, uses to hold non-citizens. The pandemic led to the suspension of almost all immigration court hearings and limited the functioning of those few courts which remain open. So on March 20th of 2020, the United States reached joint agreements with the governments of both Canada and Mexico to suspend non-essential travel um, through ports of entry on each border. On the same day, the Department of Health and Human Services the, um, issued a re an emergency regulation which permits the director of the CDC to prohibit the introduction of individuals when the director believes that there is a serious danger of the inter introduction of a disease into the United States. So that means that what they're saying is that the director of the CDC has the power to say, if I feel that it's dangerous, if I feel that the coronavirus, the risk of more Americans getting it is going to be increased by immigration from either border, I have the power to say I'm not allowing any of that. So sus basically suspending all processing of asylum seekers um, in this way, at least, is is a violation of both international and domestic law. Um, the, the U.S. CBP, the Customs and Border Protection, 
they need to immediately, they need to right now develop plans to administer appropriate screenings at the border for those asylum seekers and unaccompanied children who are all stuck in the same facility, being exposed quite heavily to the coronavirus and endangering their own lives. Because if we do that, if we start doing appropriate screenings at the border, it allows for the safe processing of all individuals in a way that protects all who are vul- all who are vulnerable while preventing the spread of the disease. I should use its broad authority to parole people and release them on alternatives to detention to the widest extent possible while their immigration court proceedings continue. And for those who remain detained, telephonic access to one's attorney and family member should be robust. In addition, despite a drop in immigration enforcement inside the United States, ICE has continued to deport people to countries around the world, even though this further threatens the risk of spreading the coronavirus. ICE should limit their enforcement actions that put communities at a heightened risk due to COVID-19 by implementing more meaningful enforcement priorities. The individuals and businesses and governments that were, you know, kind of flailing and needing help all across the country. Um, They also increased the availability of medical testing and treatment. So the CARES Act, or the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, directs all payments of approximately $2 trillion in new spending to provide emergency assistance, including direct payments for individuals, families, and businesses that were impacted by the pandemic. However, many immigrants and their families have been left out. Non-citizens who lack social security numbers, but nevertheless file federal income tax returns using individual taxpayer identification numbers, including millions of lawfully present non-citizens and their families, are deemed ineligible for recovery rebates and emergency grants. Every American citizen who files their taxes deserves this stimulus bill. But every American who files their taxes are not getting it. The immigrants are being subjected not only to poverty in the case that they may have come up from a South American country and have have no money. But now, even though this stimulus bill was meant to help people who live in America, it is only helping people who were born here, who have come here and who are citizens. It is not helping people who have come in here and who need the help. Revisiting the topic of travel restrictions, on February 2nd of 2020, President Trump issued a proclamation imposing restrictions on entry into the United States of non-citizens traveling from China. On March 2nd, similar restrictions followed regarding non-citizens traveling from Iran. On March 13th, the administration issued restrictions on travel from the 26 European nations of the Schengen area. That includes countries such as Austria, Lithuania, Greece, Germany, and France. On May 24th, similar restrictions were imposed on travel from Brazil. The proclamations prevent entry into the United States as either immigrants or non-immigrants of any non-citizen who were physically present within the designated countries during the 14-day period preceding their entry or attempted entry into the United States. 
However, it should be noted none of the proclamations fully ban travel to the U.S. These restrictions do not apply to any non-citizen who is an LPR, also known as a lawful permanent resident of the United States, the spouse of a U.S. citizen or LPR, the child, foster child, and ward of a U.S. citizen or LPR, and there are a few other points as well. These proclamations have no end date. On the first and 15th day of each month, the Secretary of Health and Human Services is required to recommend whether the President should either continue, modify, or terminate each proclamation. So, and then on April um, 20th of 2020, of course, um, five weeks after those travel restrictions were issued on European countries, President Trump declared that he intended to sign an executive order that would temporarily suspend all immigration into the U.S. On the 22nd of April, he signed Proclamation 114, the COVID-19 immigration ban. It suspended the entry of certain immigrants into the United States for an initial period of 60 days, beginning on April 24th. The proclamation relies on authority granted to the president, whose... And it has it relates to non-citizens whose entry the president has deemed to be detrimental to the interests of the United States. This is a huge thing. It allows the president to decide whether or not he would like to allow in people who are asking for help. And as we know, this president has not been the most empathetic. The stated justification for the new immigration ban varies from previous orders. The president justified the travel ban, otherwise known as the Muslim ban, on national security grounds, with the stated purpose of further increasing the scrutiny of individual immigrants and non-immigrants, as well as increasing information sharing between the United States and other nations. Unlike the travel ban, the COVID-19 immigration ban suspends the entry of immigrants based on their purported negative impact on the U.S. labor market. Not precisely the national security grounds. The proclamation does not include any analysis supporting the claim that suspending the entry of certain immigrants will help the native-born workers recover from the economic turndown that is associated with the pandemic. The COVID-19 immigration ban primarily targets a unique combination of non-citizens who seek to come into the United States based on either familiar relationship with a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident. As of April 24th, the proclamation suspends the issuance of all new immigrant visas to people outside the U.S., however, that does come with some minor exceptions. Millions of Americans who live along the United States land borders, international travel is a frequent and even necessary part of life, and it's vital for local economies and cross-border culture. On a normal day before the arrival of the coronavirus, hundreds of thousands of people crossed the border of U.S. of the U.S. and Mexico in both directions, as did an estimated 1.3 billion in goods. Similarly, hundreds of thousands of people crossed the U.S. Canada border every day, and goods flowed in both directions in the same way. Along with the flow in traffic through ports of entry, in 2019, the U.S.-Mexico border saw significant numbers of people crossing between ports of entry and seeking asylum, including nearly 
475,000 parents and children who arrived together as part of family groups. Before the coronavirus happened and, you know, exploded in the United States, the processing of asylum seekers at the border was already significantly disrupted. The current administration had been trying to limit Hispanic immigration from Mexico and other South American countries, and they had been succeeding. Under the expedited removal process in place at the border since 2004, asylum seekers who were determined to have a credible or reasonable fear of persecution were allowed to pursue asylum inside the U.S. However, in early 2019, this administration began implementing a suite of new policies that affected those asylum seekers at the border. Each of these policies disrupted or abandoned the expedited removal asylum process. With the arrival of the coronavirus pandemic, these new policies have themselves been disrupted or abandoned, further decreasing the security and efficiency of our immigration system. In March, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, the Trump administration imposed two new restrictions at the land borders. The first change affected ports of entry and the second impacted asylum seekers and others crossing between ports of entry. On March 20th, the United States reached joint agreements with the governments of both Canada and Mexico to suspend non-essential travel through ports of entry on each border. Both agreements define non-essential travel as including travel that is considered tourism or recreational in nature. There are no quarantine requirements for individuals who are permitted to travel between the countries. Citing the new CDC authority on March 20th, the Border Patrol began expelling individuals who arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border without giving them the opportunity to seek asylum. Under an agreement reached with the Mexican government, the Border Patrol began sending most Mexican, Guatemalan, Honduran families and single adults to Mexico. Individuals who are expelled do not receive an order of deportation, but the CPP takes their fingerprints and records their entry. It's unclear at the moment how this information will be used in the future or how it may possibly impact the individual's ability to seek protection in the U.S. once the pandemic has subsided. Now, at the same time, the CBP stopped processing all asylum seekers who arrive at ports of entry and ask for humanitarian protection. This led to nearly 15,000 people who had been waiting on lists for an opportunity to request asylum at ports of entry to be left in limbo with no ability to seek asylum. In addition to turning away asylum seekers, CVP has used this order to turn away and deport more than 1,000 unaccompanied children. And that's despite provisions of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which requires the government to protect children who arrive at the border without a parent or legal guardian. To close out today's episode, we have an interview with Ms. Adelina Nichols, who is the executive director of the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights. Okay, hi, Ms. Nichols. Hi, hello, how are you? I'm Vivek. Is everything good? Are you ready to get started, everyone? Yes, I am ready. I'm ready to go. Okay, First of all, welcome to our podcast. We're very excited to have you as our guest. Thank you so much for the invitation. Of course. Our very first question for you is about the border crisis. 
Georgia as well as the border states? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that in, in order for us to understand the issue with immigrant rights, I think that it is important to understand what is happening at the border as well the, the border states. It means that if we remember in 2011, the big fight in the um, in Arizona, uh, this big fight took place against the SB 1070. The bill she's referencing is Arizona's SB 1070, a state law that was intended to increase the powers of local law enforcement that wished to enforce federal immigration laws in fact, this was a Supreme Court case, and the issue was whether the law usurps the federal government's authority to regulate immigration laws. Some parts of the law were left intact. However, the law was mainly struck down. It um, wanted to criminalize um, immigrants uh, in the state of Arizona. For many, uh, many states, um, in particular southeast of the United States, Arizona meant to us like that ground zero in terms of actions and uh, pieces of legislation that came to set up all the, all the many of the battles of the immigrant rights movement um, statewide. And as well, you see, uh, and we are all uh, concerned with with the amount of people that have been detained uh, trying to cross the border, but in particular our children that remain remain in cages and they are being separated from their parents when they want to. Uh, the, the only thing that they want is to uh, have a better life, and the children are being punished uh, with a separation. And I believe this is a tactic. Uh, so trying to push back all the many families that still decide to, or, or they have the, the um, idea to come to the United States uh, for a better life. And I think it's important uh, to recognize that uh, what happened on the border in another scale is happening nationwide in terms of the uh, uh, politics and uh, as well policies that have changed many of us in terms of the strategies and tactics pushing back all these anti-immigrant sentiments uh, since that time. Okay, thank you. That was that was really illuminating. Yes, we were wondering about how, since the border crisis, obviously it is a more southern problem down near the southern states, so we were wondering how it affected Georgia, and that cleared it up. Thank you. Um, the next question we had was, could you explain a little about how during the pandemic, we need to take action and help communities, um, especially communities that might um, include people that are in danger of deportation. Yes, when you mention that, the only thing and the only word that I have in my mind is like uh, expanding your safety net. What I mean that um, many people, progressive uh, fake groups, I think it's important to. Um, to protect those that are more more uh, vulnerable, and it, there are many ways uh, and that of many other communities um, outside of their immigrant community can help and support. Um, of course, what is important as well is to mobilize our own communities from uh, in terms of. Um, 
creating uh, what we call a culture of resistance. So we fight in two different ways, no? from the inside and from others that are outside of us, that are expanding their safety net. And meaning is that um, very often we see at uh, the legislature uh, a writing bill uh, that could impact uh, the immigrant community. Um, I'm just going to give you an example. In, um, the, in, in 2008, uh, a bill was passed, uh, which was the SB 350. And the problem with that is that that um, criminalized people that uh, while driving, meaning that if you are undocumented and if you are going to, um, are you, you're being stopped by the local law enforcement, uh, for a minor traffic violation, and you don't have a proper license, um, you will be uh, sent to jail, and you will be paying the first offense between $500 to $1,000, and you will remain in jail approximately 2 to 10 days. Um, if it's the second time, it's more money, more jail, uh, until the fourth time that you will be um, called on ICE. ICE is going to be called and probably you will be, be transferred to uh, an immigration detention center. But this is uh, just a small sample that, um, that is what is happening every single day since 2008. We do have all these 287G programs uh, here in the state of Georgia, in particular in, in, in Winnet and Cross counties, where the, they are feeling Filling up all these the five detention centers that we have in the state um, in, that are for immigration ICE detention centers in particular, I want to say. But uh, there are many, uh, and what we need is the support, meaning that, that those that are outside of the immigrant community and do understand uh, what is the uh, immigrant rights movement about it or the criminalization of communities of color. We need to push back. Push back is talking to uh, local law enforcement, talking to um, going to talk to your sheriff um, to stop collaboration with ICE as well, or be present at, at the capital, not to fight back any any potential bill that criminalizes communities of color. I think for all of us, it's important to join forces, and we was we have seen now is that it's not only immigrants a target of all this criminalization as well. I, I should say that that criminalization of communities of color began many years ago. Now they are adding other groups, other sector, which is the, uh, the immigrants, into this uh, same criminalization with the 287G programs, with the uh, racial profiling, all these pieces of legislation, uh, and everything has changed in many different ways because when we go to the store or sometimes when we go to different places, people, many people feel entitled to ask you if you are illegal or not. It's like uh, um, we see how uh, the presence of this, um, in this administration uh, how that um, has changed the perception of immigrants or for those that look different. That's the reason that I think that if we together expand of, of, of 
people that has the privilege um, could help, could help expanding their uh, safety net. I think that we can make progress and um, and in many ways help in, in that way, not only immigrants, but as well other communities at large. Right. This is a question of a lot of depth, and there's a lot that happens behind that not a lot of people realize. So I'm glad you could shed some light on that. My next question for you is, what really makes someone quote-unquote illegal? Are the terms undocumented and illegal the same thing? Okay. Um, I hear your your voice raising up, but um, I think I got the idea. You were asking me about that term of uh, using illegal. Sorry, could you repeat that? What happened is that telephone was breaking. Um, I don't know if um, if I hear that I, if I heard correctly what she asked. Could you repeat that question? Okay, of course. Uh, my question was: what, You mentioned illegal immigrants. So, what really makes someone "quote unquote" illegal? And are undocumented and illegal the same thing, or what are some differences? Well, it depends your ideology. You know, if you are a progressive and understand what the struggle is about human rights, you will see that the person do not have documents with the undocumented. You know, but uh, here, uh, the, in, in, for many groups uh, or to criminalize immigrants at large, uh, they like to use the term illegal, uh, dehumanizing uh, the person um, and to be honest, it's more used like a derogatory term uh, to um, to label people. And of course, what we said is that there are many people that are undocumented. They are undocumented because uh, the immigration um, issue hasn't been solved for more than 15 years. When they had a chance uh, at the at the Congress and at the federal Congress. They haven't done anything. It has been like uh, the issue on immigration has been like a, a, so it's, it's like a, a, a ball that everybody is passing to the other team. And nobody wants really to take kind of the, uh, the leadership on this and, um, and moving the issue to solve uh, what the problem has been for, more, for almost 20 years, let me tell you. And, and I think that many of these communities, uh, what we face every single day is a huge double, uh, double standards, uh, a huge hypocrisy from even for the employers, employers that have like a 100, 200 Latinos, many immigrants, many undocumented. They want the labor. They don't, they don't do not want to stand up and fight back fighting for the rights of their own employees. And we see this uh, behavior uh, not only here in the state of Georgia, but it's all over the place. You know, it's like, uh, I don't care about my, uh, you can go in the back to my house and I have 100 people working, but in the front of my house, I am completely opposing to to fix, to do something about immigrant rights and uh, and discuss at least, not or to defend the rights of your workers. And this is uh, happening all over the place. All over the place. 
So from all these statistics and facts, one main idea can be pulled. Whether you believe it or not, whether you fall on the right side of the aisle or the left side of the aisle, our immigration system is flawed. And the coronavirus has exposed these flaws even more. And the only way we can fix these flaws is by having empathy and trying to understand what these immigrants go through on a daily basis. Thank you for tuning in to episode two of Politics on Trial. Please look forward to our next episode, which will be released on October 11th, which will be regarding RBG's death and feminism. (laughs) 